Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. It's a difficult topic, but such an important one as it's unfortunately common. All of us know a child and we may know someone who had been sexually abused as a child in their past. In order to prevent this from happening, being aware and talking about it will help. And even though this topic makes me sad and angry, we can't protect anyone unless we know. We can't change the future without knowing. And doing from a place of knowing is what makes us more powerful. I am honored that Mary Beth Beers was willing to share her story and insight on today's episode. When a perpetrator intentionally harms a minor physically, psychologically, sexually, or by acts of neglect, this is a crime. And this is child abuse. Let's be really clear. A child cannot consent to any form of sexual activity ever. And this is the really scary part, and the reason why all of us need to be more knowledgeable. According to the RAIN.org website, which stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, the majority of perpetrators are someone the child or the family knows. As many as 93% of victims under the age of 18 know the abuser. And sometimes the perpetrator is not always an adult. And here are more stats. 30% of child sexual abuse is never reported. More than 90% of individuals with a disability or a developmental delay will be sexually assaulted at least once in their lifetime. There are nearly 500,000 registered sex offenders in the U.S. And according to the National Sex Offenders Registry, a typical pedophile will commit 117 sexual crimes in a lifetime. During the interview today, Mary Beth Beers states that Don King sexually abused her when she was a child. Because of multiple accusations, King was banned from USA Swimming in 2009 from being a coach or a member of the organization. And on the usaswimming.org website, you can now find a list of individuals who have received a lifetime ban and are permanently ineligible for membership, and a list of individuals who are currently suspended. Don King had been acquitted of sexual abuse by Oregon's court system, but the truth is, the statistical chance of conviction in a sexual assault case is extremely low in the U.S. and many other countries. So just because one is found not guilty does not mean that they are not guilty. When King was acquitted of sexual abuse, three more women came forward claiming that he had illegal sex with them when he was their swim coach in California in the 70s and 80s. 
In episode three of this podcast, we talked about adverse childhood experiences and how it's known to lead to adult onset of chronic diseases, depression, and other mental illness, violence, and being a victim of violence, as well as other social problems. This is childhood trauma that can affect the rest of our lives if we don't address it and stop it. And here's another matter that I wanted to bring up. It's generally known that women who report their sexual assaults to police and go on trial to convict their rapists either get labeled a slut or a nut by the legal defense team and, in turn, the media. Victims either get questioned on their sexual history to prove that they are a slut and not a credible witness, or they get discredited and made to look as if they are mentally unstable i.e. the nut. The idea that rape victims either asked for it or are lying is deeply embedded in the defense tactics and is part of the legal narrative. It's one thing to be a survivor from sexual assault, but pursuing the perpetrator in court can leave victims even more wounded for a long time due to its cruel nature. There's a 2016 documentary by director Kelly Shoker Slut or Nut, The Diary of a Rape Trial, that documents Mandy Gray's sexual assault case and her process of reporting the accusation. And Mandy Gray stated that after the documentary, that the media was pretty awful to her and that she had received death threats and rape threats regularly subsequent to the documentary. What's wrong with us? Seriously. And this is another really sad statistic. Based on correlating multiple data sources, Rain.org estimates that for every 1,000 rapes, 384 are reported to the police, 57 result in an arrest, 11 are referred for prosecution, 7 result in a felony conviction, and 6 result in incarceration. So the vast majority of perpetrators don't get prosecuted, and they are amongst us. Just in case you're thinking it, because I'm thinking it, what the fuck? But here is the reason for talking about this today. Sexual abuse is preventable through education, and we can get help if we have been abused in their past or currently. And today I'll be speaking with Mary Beth Beers, who over 40 years ago experienced life-changing events that one in three girls and at least one in five boys also experience before they are 18 years old. And yet our society still does not talk about the issue enough. She is a childhood sex abuse survivor, but prefers to refer to herself as a thriver. Mary Beth grew up with love for the water and swam on a competitive swim team throughout her childhood. Her swim coach, trusted by the community, her family, and especially by Mary Beth, groomed and ultimately sexually abused her for years. She is here today to talk about the impact that the experience made on her growing up and her adult life. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Mary Beth. I'm really honored to be able to speak with you today. Thank you, Michelle, for welcoming me. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. 
And I know, you know, our discussion is not going to be easy. And thank you so much for having the courage to be here and talk about your story. Can you describe to us what happened to you in the past? Sure, Michelle. Um, I'm going to start by saying to your listeners and to you as well that nothing is so bad that we can't talk about it. So with that in mind, um, I truly feel like it's okay to speak about this issue of childhood sexual abuse. And I welcome your questions. Nothing's off limits. I think that by talking about it, for me, each time I speak about it, it alleviates me a bit. And I'm really determined to get the education out to others. So with that said, thank you for this opportunity to talk about my individual story. Um, It started back in 1970s. Um, I was an age group swimmer at a swim club in Santa Clara called Kona Kai. And I don't mind using that name mm-hmm. and divulging um, the place and time. Uh, so it was in the, in the 70s. Uh, I was about, oh, an eight to 10-year-old swimmer. Uh, I grew up in a family with four other, with, with three siblings. So there are four children. My mom was Catholic. My dad is an engineer. So I like to say they had boy, girl, boy, girl. So there's a family of four kids and a mom and dad who are very busy and great parents. But you can imagine having four kids under the age of eight years old, uh, how to burn off their energy and put them into some activity that would be healthy for them. So they put us onto a swim team at Kona Kai, an AAU club uh, where it was age group swimming. So all of us could swim in the same practice. Mm -hmm. And as my mom said, she loved it because we came home tired and clean. (sighs) And we did. And um, I bonded with many of my friends there. I still have lifelong friends. It was just sort of a utopian place in the middle of Santa Clara. Um, Lots of families and fun times. Um, During my swimming childhood career, um, a coach came onto the scene named Don King. And again, I don't mind using his name. Um, And I was about 10 years old, I want to say, when he came on board. And And he was different. He was really charismatic. People really really seemed to go toward his light, his energy. He was very funny, gregarious. He liked to hug kids a lot. Family seemed to really like that this guy was taking care of their kids and coaching them swimming. I remember thinking, no, what's with this guy? He doesn't look like a swimmer. He's short, stout, mm-hmm. big, strong guy. Most swimmers are tall and lean. He didn't swim very well himself. So I was kind of wondering, what's up? Like, why would parents hire this guy? But uh, they did. And and uh, he coached a team of about oh, 100 swimmers or so. And from about age 11 on, he really seemed to pay a lot of attention to me specifically and maybe a couple other swimmers. But I felt like... I was being pulled in even more to that. So um, he was your coach pull. for several years then? He was a coach from age 10 to about 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I'll get move along more a little more quickly. So I'm calling that like the grooming phase. He By grooming, I meant he would put his arms around me. He'd hug me, tell me I'm special, tell me I'm pretty. Um, he would massage my back and shoulders. And to the point when where- When you were age 11. When I was about age 11, 12. And so the first instance where I realized he crossed boundaries um, was I was 12 years old at a 
um, awards event and it ends up being a swim team sleepover. And I was on his lap in his office, I remember. Um, and he was um, massaging my back, but under my shirt and his hands went around to my breast buds. And I clearly remember that because it's etched in my mind what I, f- what I could feel the the breast buds as a developing adolescent. They were not breasts yet. Mm-hmm. And I remember just feeling really still like I'm going to be caught. Not like he was going to be caught, but someone's going to catch me doing this. So I kept it really still, really quiet. And over time, he continued to do things like that. He would uh, come into the locker room when I was alone and watch me in the shower um, when I was naked. And again, nothing so bad. We can't talk about it. The sexual abuse continued on until eventually by age 14, he was having sexual intercourse with me. Um, And that went on for quite a while, like a year or more. So I can't even count the number of times that those sexual encounters um, occurred. And what was, were you thinking when he was watching you showering like as a 12-year-old? I did tell him to go away. Uh-huh. I remember saying, you're not supposed to be in here. And ironically, it was mainly because it's a girl's locker room and you're a boy. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't so – but I felt like when you're a swimmer in a swimsuit, it feels like everything's exposed anyway. It, mm-hmm. I didn't have really a conscious feeling of you can't see my body because I always felt like my body was out there anyway. Mm-hmm. And – um just didn't have a clear sense of boundaries um, Mm. at that time. Did you know what sex was at that age? I did not. um, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. I I think I knew what what intercourse was. Mm -hmm. And when you say sex, what I encompass is everything around that topic. I didn't know what oral sex was. I didn't know what fondling was. I didn't know what an erection was. I didn't know um, what a clitoris was. Mm-hmm. I'm saying all these words because they're they're parts of our anatomy. They're real words. And uh, I know that, like I used the word intercourse, and eventually in my when I was raising my kids, my 15-year-old, um, when I revealed to him what happened, he said, so did intercourse mean then what it means now? And I said, well, yes, it does. I thought that was an interesting question. And he said, well, then you were raped. And I thought in that moment, he had such a clear idea of what rape was. And I didn't. And he said, um, well, why don't you, if you were raped, why don't you sleep with a gun under your pillow? And I said, you know, I never would have used a gun. A gun wouldn't have helped me. Education would have helped me. Had I known what was going on, um, then I think I would have been protected. And uh, so I I thought that was really a fast forward generational, Mm -hmm. um, you know, piece of education that I'm optimistic that these days we are providing our kids with different education. My education was at a small Catholic school and I and the way they did sex education was they split the girls and the boys up. We went into a room where a nurse that happened to be a mom of one of the students in our class basically showed what I call Disney cartoons of pretty fallopian tubes with floating eggs and there's flowers to, on it or yeah, something. Yeah, basically <laughs> it looked like they were blooming and we were told that this is what nature does and this is what happens. And 
and then the boys are playing dodgeball. And then the boys come in and they get their lesson. And I had no idea what the boys are being told. And the boys had no idea what the girls are being told. And I think that's a disservice to our young. I think it's important that both boys and girls understand each other's bodies and what's hap- what happens in each other's bodies. Um, otherwise, we're setting them up for failure in I think. So it, back to your question on did I know it was going on? I knew that I was being cared for in a special way by a man who was 20 years older than me that everybody revered. So that's it, what you thought. That's right? what I thought. And I thought in my childhood mind that he really loved me and chose me and I was special. Um, and I also knew because of the Catholic upbringing that it would absolutely break my mom's heart. And my father would have no tolerance for it either. And he was a really good friend of my parents. He would come for dinner. My mom, he was a bachelor. So my mom really kind of took her him under his wing. My dad loved his jovial spirit. I love seeing my dad and him laugh together. That made me feel good. When he was um, really like a predator lurking around you and your family. Yeah. And what your son describes that term, that's the appropriate term for what happened. I mean, he's an adult 20 years older than you. Mm-hmm. It's rape. You were a child. Yeah, but in my mind, rape only occurred when it's forced mm-hmm. at gunpoint or very or at knife point, very violent, and the victim is physically trying to resist. And this felt nothing like that. Mm-hmm. This felt like I was complicit and that all he had to do was groom me with words and actions, gifts. He would give me sweats, like Adidas sweats that he was not giving to any other swimmer. Um, he just, he paid a lot of attention to me. So to me, it felt like I was involved in a relationship. I'm using air quotes because, um, again, I, I mean, every reaction is normal. In your child, in your child mind, you know. Yeah, in my child mind. Yeah. And, you know, and I think maybe... Um, fast forwarding, but when I did reveal to my family, um, one of my brothers said, well, you know, and he had a daughter about my age, 15 at the time. And I said, you know, I just really don't want this to happen to her. I want you to be aware one in Mm -hmm. three girls will be uh, sexually abused by the time she's 18. And usually it's 90% by somebody they know, not stranger danger. And he said, oh, it'll never happen to her because we told her never to date anybody more than four or five years older than her. And I thought, I never went on a date. You know, I never was taken to the movies. I was never. So, um, but in my child mind, that's how it felt. Uh, So anyway, and and my my mom and dad, my training was stranger danger. Mm -hmm. Like going off to walking to school my mom would say, now, you know why you shouldn't take candy from strangers, Mary Beth? And I said, yeah, mom, it's because candy will give you cavities. And she kind of smiled and laughed. And it's a pretty cute response for a little kid. But I don't remember getting a lot of education about boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember locked doors, keep, you know, predators, criminals away. But, you know, back in the 70s, that was very typical for the time. I'm not putting my parents on the spot. In fact, I really do feel like they were victimized, if not as much more so than me, because I was their daughter and they did the right thing by putting me in an activity that should have been safe. Um, 
And I think that's the truth regarding, like, child sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. 93% of the time, it's by a person that you know. The perpetrator is a person that you know. It could be a family member. It could be a teacher. It could be, like, someone in your church or religion or a coach. Mm-hmm. It's by someone you know. It's not mm-hmm. by someone you don't know. Mm-hmm. And therein lies the problem for the victim, uh, because they have a trust relationship with their predator, um, and they don't want to tell. First of all, they feel complicit, yeah. and secondly, they don't want to hurt usually the predator's feelings. Like you saying you love me, and he used to say to me when I'd say stop or go away, um, then he would say you're really pretty on the outside, but you're ugly on the inside. And that made me feel like I really wanted to please him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that component. That's There's so many reasons why children will not come forward. And the heartache for me is that in order to stop predators, you're asking a child to report an adult. It seems backwards to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, what you're, child, you're a child can do that? Know? Yeah. And like for a child in your mind as a child... You could think that's a relationship, but, you know, adults know that's a fucked up relationship. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's clearly fucked up, but that's the thing about a child. Well, let me tell you when I came to the realization. So let all that went on. I'm sorry. I'm getting so angry. That's okay. (laughs) That's another normal. Every response is normal to the situation. And I think, okay, that's another reason not to tell (laughs) is it evokes something in the person listening to your story. And I'm very conscientious about that. I don't want to harm others. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to tell a story that is painful. I feel responsible to the listener that, um, okay, I'm going to tell my story. And I'm sorry, I'm empathizing with that child in you, you know? I appreciate (laughs) that. No, I totally appreciate that. And I'll tell you the first time I really empathized with that child in me wasn't until I was in, I was about... 40. And may I ask you, at the time, did you tell anyone? No, I did not. I didn't even tell a friend. I didn't tell anybody. In fact, mm-hmm. I worked so hard at keeping it a secret. I worked really hard. Um, did your parents have any inclination or idea? No. I mean, later in life, in my 40s, I did tell them and they absolutely said we had no idea. And I don't I b- totally believe them. There's no reason why they would think. And and this guy would do s- weird stuff like my family, um, we always sat together at the dinner table. We always had dinner together. Uh, and I love that about our family dynamic. And just to show you how intrusive this guy was, he would um, – that's back before cell phones. We had one landline in the house, and the phone would ring during dinner time, and the chime would ring once – and then it wouldn't ring again. Or somebody would go to the phone and it would be dead with a dial tone at the other end. And the next day he would say, I called you last night. And I said, you did? He goes, yeah, it rang, I rang once and hung up. So he was intruding into my family even when he wasn't physically there. Um, it's a very – he was this just adult. very psychologically, emotionally abusive there. But what I was going to say about the the realizing the child in me – uh, like I said, he was. I was 14, 15 years old at the peak of my sex abuse. Um, and 
fast forward, now I have little boys and a husband and a, and a family and I've moved on and it's not even part of my life. Um, I have a great life and we hired a babysitter to come to the house to watch the boys. So we just go out on a regular you know, date night and then babysitter came to the home and I love this girl. She's very responsible, great student, very affable young lady girl. I shouldn't call her a young lady. She was a girl. She was 15 years old. She came, it was a hot day. She came in her shorts and a tank top and her school books pressed to her chest and a ponytail. Mm -hmm. And she was 15 and my husband was 35, same age difference. And I looked at him and I looked at her and I, I really had like what I would call a panic attack. It was the first time I realized the age gap and said, there is to myself, there's no way that my husband would ever consider doing anything to this girl, even if she was naked, sprawled on the bed. I'm sorry to use mm-hmm. those terms, but that's exactly what I thought. He knows, he has the moral compass to know that is absolutely not okay. And that's when I really clutched in, in my tracks. And I think um, the, the real harm in child abuse, sex abuse, isn't so much what you go through in your childhood. I think it's what rears later in life an adult reconciling your childhood. Um, and so, like you just said, I got angry for that child. I really did set aside time and even made an appointment with myself to go to the beach and cry for that child in me, mm-hmm. to mourn the loss of my childhood innocence. Um, it was important to do that for me. And nobody actually told me to do that, but I felt like it was really important to mourn the loss of a child. And the to lack be, of protection. And to be now me being that caring adult for the child in me. For me to seek her out, to seek that child out and to tell her all those things you just said earlier. It wasn't your fault. Uh, you didn't have it coming. Um, I love that. You're you know? okay. You're enough. I love you. I'm going to take care of you from now on. I honor you, little girl. Um, to be your protector. Mm-hmm. And I allow you, little girl, even though you're an adult, to do childhood things. Relive mm-hmm. some fun childhood stuff. Watch <laughs> watch cartoons read fairy tales you know it sounds silly but Mm -hmm. it's okay to engage in you know kind of let that feed that inner child in me and not just be such a stoic adult on the matter your moment of revelation when you were looking at your husband with that 15 year old babysitter is so powerful Mm -hmm. you know the idea of moral compass hopefully it's something that we should all have But for all those years, did you think it was your fault? Oh, yeah. I thought I was, I absolutely thought it was my fault. And I'm not, and again, every reaction's normal, but I've had reactions from people that said, well, why did you keep going to him? Uh, Well, why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you say something? And all of those, all I could say is because I was complicit and I felt at fault. And um, I particularly felt at fall another revelation day that crumbled was when I learned when I was 44 that the same coach, Don King, was acquitted of 
um, sexual abuse and a swim team that he coached up in Oregon. And an off, I'll tell you quickly the stories that what I learned is that an off-duty police officer filmed him, took photos or videoed him at a swim meet where he put his finger up the underneath the girl's swimsuit underneath her backside and reported it. And he went on trial with a jury and a jury acquitted him because they could not find sexual intent. I was mortified. That's really when my world crumbled because I realized right then and there, if he's, he's still doing it, he's still, and he has had multiple victims. Um, that's, very well documented and victims have come forward. Um, and it is, I have never felt so much guilt and shame in my entire life that I felt like I allowed him to continue. Um, And shame for our society to acquit a man like that because there was no obvious evidence. Our thinking needs to change. It, it absolutely does. Thanks for that. You know, sexual abuse is sexual abuse is sexual abuse. Right. Um, it actually, it really does. And it's, I get it's hard for a kid at a swim meet to say something to a coach in yeah. public. You know, and this was the other way he operated too. He would do so many out of bound things in public that were just barely borderline that uh, maybe parents didn't think of it as sex abuse. But what he was doing was just erasing boundaries. Yeah. And so he could get closer and closer. So and he's clearly violating someone else. Definitely. Yeah. That all falls under violation. Yep, definitely. And he, he did know, mm-hmm. and he should have known. Absolutely. But um, and the many masks he wore, you know, as your coach, as a family friend, as a beloved member of the community. But in reality, he's a predator. He's mm-hmm. a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. He's an abuser. Mm-hmm. He's so a, that's the real identity for many, many, many years. Yeah, he was a wolf. Unfortunately, because he was so revered, um, many of the communities still saw him that way and would say responses such as, well, it never happened to my child. And so I can't believe that he would do this to anybody else's kid. Or I've, I have him over for dinner in my family. I trust him with my kids, my kids, you know, he would never abuse my kids. And I think that's a problem we have with society is that, um, because it didn't happen to you or your child doesn't mean it didn't happen. And I, like to say there was glass on the pool deck just because everybody didn't step on it doesn't mean it wasn't there and i'm concerned about that with sex abuse and in with children is that a coach can be in charge of a hundred swimmers and only abuse one or two or three um and because he doesn't abuse 97 that exonerates him uh in the public eye and i i want to say that if a child says something, they're telling the truth. <laughs> I agree. They don't lie. And the best thing you could say to a kid was people ask, how come you never told? Like you asked, did you ever tell anybody? And my best answer is nobody ever asked. Nobody ever asked. I probably would have if somebody asked, but I didn't feel... Co- In fact, one time when I was 18, somebody did ask. 
did Don King ever do anything to you? I noticed he treated you special. And immediately- Was it another team member? It was actually a a coach that took over for him much later. Um, Pretty stand-up guy. And he said, I noticed you have this thing, you know, this this, a different kind of relationship with your coach. And now you hate him. What went on? Did something go on with you guys? Mm -hmm. And immediately I said, yes, something did. I was asked- um, did something go on with you? Um, but so that's one thing, you know, to, to ask is, and the other thing is to believe the first response shouldn't be, well, why did you go back? Or, um, I can see why he chose you. You were so pretty or, you know, there's lots of different responses. And the first response should be, I believe you. Yeah, because how many times do they blame a victim, you know, mm-hmm. either be it an adult or even a child mm-hmm. somewhere or another? I you think know? that they're well-meaning. I think they're trying to figure out the phenomenon um, and maybe figure out ways they could have protected or how I could have self-protected. Um, but the real, like you said, the real perpetrator was him um uh how could we have prevented him what could we have done different and i think those are questions being asked now in mm-hmm. this time frame which is awesome to see parents and communities even like usa swimming i'm not going to give them full credit i have my own issues with that organization based on my experience but they do have now in place safe sport there are educational tools out there that can empower parents, coaches, even swimmers, um, to prevent or at least be on the lookout for these kinds of behaviors, identify them and and be on the lookout. I don't think we had that in the 70s. Um, It's not a pass, but it's improving. I was reviewing the RAIN website, the the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, and they were saying every nine minutes a child is sexually assaulted in the U.S., Mm-hmm. How sick is that? I know it's it's so, it's so prevalent. Common. It's so prevalent, and yet it's we can't talk about it. It's a taboo uh, topic. Uh, but it happens, and it may be happening before your eyes, and you don't yeah. know, or you look at a child and you just don't know what happens in their home or wherever right. or what's happening to them. Right, it it's, happens. It happens. It's icky. It's gross. I know when I talk about it. Um, that the first thing I anticipate, and this is my own perception, is that uh, that visual imagery, they're going to see me. I feel like naked wrapped in saran wrap. Like, of course, if you start talking about childhood sexual abuse and I say I'm 14, 15, having intercourse with a 35-year-old, I know that the mind's eye goes there. It's hard to talk to somebody and know you're being seen like that. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It's yeah. just a very like visually revealing part. That very vulnerable moment in your life and you mm-hmm. choosing to share that or show it. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how hurtful it must be too. It's a lot, you know, shame I think is one of the, if not the strongest, most powerful emotion. Um that overshadows so many other decisions that one would make or attitudes. Um, I would say second only to gratitude. <laughs> if you can 
if you can pivot, which is huge in healing, if you can pivot from disgust, anger, um, shame to gratitude, I think it's my sense is it's impossible to hold both those thoughts at the same time in your head. So how long have you carried the shame for? Oh, I still do. Um, Are you carrying blame too? Not so much anymore. Um, That took a lot of work, Michelle. So again, back when I learned that he was abusing other um, swimmers. Young girls. Yeah, I had a, let's see, that was like 2008. I was mid-40s. And I learned that even one swimmer allegedly uh, was abused by him. It was never proven, but she had committed suicide. Um, oh, my gosh. I know. That still haunts me that How I could old have was prevented. She? she was a teen also. She, uh, yeah. And I never knew. walking around still? Yeah, I never knew her, but I did. Her mom was, of course, very... Um, was grieving quite a bit and I don't blame her, but she did speak out that those of us who came before should have said something or her daughter would still be alive. I can't take that in that it's my responsibility, but I do share in that. That part is, that's something I've had to work through when you say the blame. And really what I've had to do is say the blame only goes to him. He chose to do these things. He chose to take advantage of a young girl. And I was a little girl. And um, even though I saw myself as more grown up, I was probably a little more mature for my age, as I was told. I was a good student. I was in leadership stuff. So I didn't have like the hallmark um, depression or Mm -hmm. um, uh, isolation and I didn't have, I didn't really have drug abuse. I mean, I was a teen. Um, and that's the other thing this coach did is he provided marijuana. So like, so many boundaries crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't say I fell into a typical, I did a good job of masking it, of hiding it, being so good at whatever I tried to do that nobody would suspect Um but you live, I think live sometimes living with feelings of like shame and guilt is kind of incarcerating too. It was. It was it It's like not living to your full potential because it's weighing you down in a way. It definitely like sneaks up in those what I call like the twilight time when you're when I'm focused on something, or I'm engaged in something, I don't think about it. When I'm fully relaxed and asleep, I don't think about it. But in between when your mind's just kind of going where it wants to go, it still goes back to those abuse moments, times. Um, it, it's not erasable, uh, but it can be dealt with. It's it's like having a condition. I liken it to maybe like those that have to um, live with diabetes or any other chronic ongoing issue in their life, mm-hmm. that they learn to manage it and they have treatment tools, um, that allow them to live their best life despite the condition. So that's sort of how I liken it, that even though I have this affliction, I guess you'd call it, or experience, I'm still entitled to a great life. I'm still entitled to living my best life, and that's exactly what I 
actually told the predator when I finally came of age, like 17, 18, I said literally to his face, you need to stop this with me and you need to go find an adult to have a relationship with. At some point I came to that realization that this is wrong. I'm a kid. And I told him to go do that. And he, and ironically he did, he ended up getting married to a, a appropriate adult and that didn't stop him from continuing to abuse young mm. people. And I remember saying to him, I'm going to live my best life despite this. I'm going to live my best life. And from 18 on, that's exactly what I did. I Do you feel like you were able to live your best life? I think I compartmentalized and I did live of, I have lived and am still living a very good life beyond very good. It's excellent. Um, I always say, despite everything, I want to come back as me. <laughs> when I go, I still want to come back as me. And and that includes everything, including these episodes in the 70s. It's brought me to where I am today. And mm -hmm. I like this place where I am now. I wouldn't wish it on others, but I know that it, it was something I I got through and life is challenges and opportunities and joyful events and negative events. And it's what you do with them. I had pain in my life. Do I have suffering? No. Pain happens. Um, and it's an, it's my option to not suffer, to look toward positive fun. I really enjoy having fun. I have great friends, wonderful family members, great kids. I have lots of opportunities to outreach. Um, so yeah, I'm very fortunate. Um, so the, but have I lived my best life? Yeah. I'm going to say with what I have been handed me, it's an absolutely a wonderful life. How has the abuse affected your sexual life or intimacy and relationships? That's a good question because um, just like your mind doesn't forget, the cells in your body don't forget either physically. Your body like automatically recoils and um, remembers even if you try to override it. Um, so let's see. I, nothing so bad we can't talk about it, right? And uh, what I will say, how it affected my sexual life, um, when I hit that emotional time, I call it really a breakdown. I was in, I had insomnia for two weeks. I was disoriented. Uh, I was physically unable to really approach life. That's when I realized he was abusing other swimmers. And that went on for a while. So I sought therapy. How um, old were you then? I was 44. That was mm -hmm. the first time I saw therapy for this. And like I tell anybody. When you found out he was abusing other girls. Mm -hmm. And again, I told, uh, I told my husband prior to that, what happened to me. I've told my parents, I've told some friends prior to 2008. But it was when I learned that he was abusing other girls that I, I really did have a, a, what I would call a breakdown. Um, cause I've never had that before and I haven't really had it since. And so I needed help. Um, I really did need to ask for help and I did. I found a therapist that truly helped me. And I tell you, Michelle, the first things she did is I didn't believe it was a crime. 
I didn't believe it was rape and I didn't believe he did anything wrong. I thought it was mutual. I still had those thoughts at age 44 Mm -hmm. in my ingrained in me. And, uh, even though you never like it's even though you carry that shame. Yeah. I know it's just a mixed bag of feelings, but still I felt I was Mm -hmm. complicit and at least partially responsible. So it took her three sessions or more just to convince me that it's not okay for an adult to sexually abuse kids. It was super helpful to me to hear her say that. And then I thought I was normal. I had a happy, healthy... To understand that it was a crime, to that it was a rape. To understand it was a rape. It was a crime that I had no business making those consensual choices for myself at that time with a person 20 years older that I did not go through sexual development in a normal way where I was able to experience it peer-to-peer at the appropriate age when it's appropriate developmentally. So it really altered my attitudes towards sex. Um, I felt like sex was more or less a responsibility and not something that was mutually enjoyed. I felt um, like, uh, so with that said, I remember my abuser, for instance, if he had an erection in his shorts Mm -hmm. or if he had any kind of an erection, he'd put my hand on it and say, look what I did to him. And it was my job to finish it in some way. This adult. This, that, the unhealthy adult in my life, right? (laughs) The predator. The adult, yeah. The adult said to the 15-year-old, you need to, uh, you know, it was my job, literally my responsibility to take care of that for him. So sexually, I have a very loving partner, very um, understanding and patient, and we can talk about stuff. And he's and one thing that really bothered me, <laughs> nothing so bad we can't talk about it, is at night when he would have an erection, for instance, happens to guys, right? And I would think, oh no, he's poking me. Uh, and I would get upset over it, like internally anxious, mm-hmm. high level anxiety. That was my response to an erection is immediately my anxiety level went up. It was bringing those memories back. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. and, and then my therapist pointed out, isn't that nice? He desires you. And what a pivot that is mm-hmm. to go from it's my responsibility to he is expressing a desire. Um, and that's a healthy relationship. In healthy relationships, that's what you're supposed to do. It's a supposed mutual to feel relationship. Like a mutually respectful mm-hmm. relationship. Um, and then there are some sexual activities because I was abused so much by this coach, and I'll go ahead and say it, is he one of the things he really uh, did a lot was oral sex on me. Um, that was just kind of something he was just <laughs> focused really on and uh, apparently with other sexual abuse victims as well. But so that has had become kind of an off limits because again, it brings up just the cellular anxiety, mm-hmm. the anxiety level that gets so high, it becomes a panic attack. So yeah, it it's the cells in your body. Don't forget. There are many other wonderful ways that I can enjoy a healthy sexual relationship with my partner 
it's loving. It's, it took therapy on, you know, my part, I will say, um, I always told him, you're normal. I'm the one that asked that needs help. He was expressing himself normally. And I did, I got help. Um, and I'm glad I just wish I had done it sooner. I wish I had gotten help sooner. Um, that's what I tell people that have experienced this kind of thing that there is help that you got help, you know, I know. And I, I do feel like back to living my best life. I think for me, I believe in universal timing, like everything happens at this stage in time in life that it's supposed to. And I don't know that those resources would have been available to me or that I would have sought them as a 15 year old. I don't know that they were, I don't know how I would have been reacted to had I come forward. It might have been even more scarring and painful to be outed in my community, to Mm -hmm. have my peer group know what was going on. Again, I kept it a secret, which is a very unhealthy thing to do. Um, But if I could have believed in privacy, that things can be private, and that's a more healthy way of looking at it. Um, That's why I try to describe to my kids, you you know, that secrets are one thing. It's not okay to keep a secret from family, but I can definitely um, respect privacy and respect your privacy. We can keep the matter private. And when I tell somebody, I'm saying I'm gonna like I'm telling you today and your listeners, um, I'm telling you something because I want to. I'm sharing my private story, and with that, I trust you and I honor that you're gonna do with my story good things. Um, that it's not a secret, it's private matter. And I expect that it's going to go out um, and people will enjoy the privilege of being in that private moment, um, thoughts that this is going on with somebody. That's always welcomed, I think, private to be in... um, the comfort of privacy versus I'm going to tell you something and you have to keep it a secret. I always tell my friends, well, then don't tell me because I'm not going to keep a secret. (laughs) But if you tell me in private, I can respect that privacy. But if you're telling me in private that you were abused, I'm going to help you or I'm going to encourage you to go take it to somebody else. I'm not going to keep it private. I might even go to an authority figure, to the police or to somebody who can help you and say, hey, this person could use some help. Yeah. It's As not, a, should because it's it's not about um, divulging a secret. It's yeah. about honoring a privilege of privacy. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Because it is a crime. It know? is a crime. It's a crime and it's a, yeah. No matter how complicated our feelings are, it is a crime. Mm-hmm. What do you think would have helped you as child of Mary Beth during that time? Child of Mary Beth at that time would have really used um, a better understanding of boundaries and also, well, in, in any abuse, whether it be emotional, psychological, or sexual, um, to be taught that it's okay to feel safe. Uh, For instance, when I talk to my kids, I'd say, okay, here's a boundary means if an adult does or says anything to you 
that they wouldn't normally do if I were standing right next to you or any other adult you trust, it's probably not okay. And you need to Mm -hmm. tell somebody that. I think that's a really good description of a boundary because um, I would say, okay, well, any an adult can't touch you anywhere where your swimsuit is or your mm-hmm. underwear. Um, an and adult, I love that. It's your right to feel safe. Yeah. An adult can't touch you, period. <laughs> you know, because it didn't start with touching me in the underwear spots. Mm-hmm. It started in the neck, yeah. the shoulders, the rib cage, you know, so. As you said, he groomed you. He groomed for me. Years. But would he have done that if my mom was standing next to me? I think I would have been able to delineate that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. Do you think he would have had had you sit on his lap if your mom you know the other thing is i will say that he would do that in front of adults too Uh um and that was part of his modus operandus is to make everybody around him uh feel like he was your breast nipples no but he would not have touched my breast buds Mm -hmm. if my mom or dad were standing right there or another one of their friends or a teacher so that's the number one is to understand boundaries is a definition would be any adult that does or says anything to you that they wouldn't otherwise. And that now includes like text messaging, social media, you know, it would they post that or text that to you if they knew your parent was watching or reading that same text? Is it appropriate? Um, the other thing I wish that I had was a better understanding of sex. Um, I wish I knew what oral sex was. I wish I, I think I said this earlier, I wish I knew what an erection was. I wish I knew, um, what ejaculation meant, um, orgasm. I wish I knew what a clitoris was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I knew vagina. I knew penis. Um, I knew they went in together, (laughs) didn't know really fully the mechanics that touching breast buds, for instance, can cause arousal and an erection. Um, I didn't understand that an erection can be an erection without ejaculation. Mm -hmm. That's how I was taught in the Disney version of the fallopian tube is that a penis, when it's erect, it'll ejaculate so that you can, you know, fertilize an egg. So I just felt like you must. (laughs) I'm a girl, though. I didn't understand boy parts. I think that's another thing that we, I wish that I understood the sexual um, phenomenon that goes on with males as much as we were being taught female anatomy Mm -hmm. and uh, sexual responses. Um, I think that would have helped. I think the other thing that would have helped that's going on now more um, is to understand how predators work and for the community to understand that they, the way they work is to figure out a way to have access to children, to have... Um, and they do have access to children. They do. To have access, privacy, and control. Uh, so question... Um, adults in your kid's life that are showing that they're having too much access to your kids, especially privately, um, and that they are controlling them in some way. I'll give an example. My son, fifth grader, was in the school play, and he had this very gregarious, nice um, director. 
And I'm not saying there was anything nefarious about him. I don't know. But my intent, I went up because he asked. And they had this joking relationship. They seemed to bond with the mm-hmm. same level of humor, more adult humor than fifth grade humor. And it's nice when you see your kid getting attention and, you know, laughing. And you love to see mentors and adults in your kid's life that are positive. Um, I welcomed that. I'm not so suspecting of every adult. But when the adult asked, um, I really am enjoying my time with your son. I'd like to take him to a play. Um, Can I take him to this play that's coming up, like an adult play? And I said, that's really great. He would love to go. Thank you. You know, but um, can you get me a ticket too? I'll go with you. Uh, he's not. I love that. He's not old enough yet. Yes. I didn't say mm-hmm. so much, but he's not. I go, basically, you know, he's not old enough to just go one-on-one with an adult. In my head, I was thinking mm-hmm. that. And, you know, he dropped it. He didn't ever get me the third yeah. ticket. Um, so I wanted to prevent him. I Like, it's totally fine if you want to be with him in public in a in a public safe space, environment, safe environment. People. And we had mm-hmm. parents that were observing the, um, that were stationed there and took shifts to watch the play practices. You know, everything was above board. It was great. Um, but yeah, access, privacy, and, um, and uh, control. Um, are they controlling on, um, you know, making too many demands on their time that they need to spend time with that particular adult, that they're one-on-one, I'm going to pick your kid up and go to practice. And it's just the two of them. There are now more mandated um, Mm -hmm. practices and policies for sports, which is awesome. That was one of the outcomes of this, I believe. um, And like you say, you know, like educating our own children right now like you know for parents to know what they could do Mm -hmm. to kind of you know have your antennas go up or for even a child Mm -hmm. to know what someone can do to you or not you know like no one can do that to you right for a child to understand like sexual education or mm -hmm. how their bodies work Mm -hmm. to respect that you know exactly michelle now i've had the privilege to raise boys i've never (laughs) raised a daughter that's probably a good thing who knows how overprotective i would have been but with boys i will tell you that i took it to heart that they're going to need education too again one out of three girls but the statistics are high with boys too one out of four one out of five boys young boys are also molested by somebody before they're age 18 so it's a very just an epidemiological problem um in our it's culture significant. it exists it's common it's here and it i don't think there's much we can do about the predators to be honest i think they're just i that's my opinion they're wired that way they just are doing what they're wired to do they're immoral it's evil it's bad but um unless maybe they get some real deep help i don't know what to do about predators to prevent them from doing what they do with my kids I just tried to really speak to them frankly about their body parts. Um, I remember one of our sons, for instance, uh, had like an undescended testicle. He was about Mm -hmm. six or seven, six years old, seven maybe. Um, And we told him we got to take him to the doctor to figure out what's going on there. He goes, but mom, you told me nobody can ever touch my body there. Mm -hmm. 
and I took a little baby sock. I mean, these are ways I hope that parents can be creative and try to talk even though they Mm -hmm. don't want to. I took a baby sock, put two marbles in it, and I use words. This is your scrotum. Do you feel the two marbles? Those are called testicles, and that's how you're supposed to feel. And then I took a marble out and said, now feel that. Do you feel that? That's how you are right now. And we need to go to a doctor who's trained in this body part, just like other doctors are trained on how to fix shoulders or eyes or tummies. Doctors are also trained to fix these parts of our body. And we're going to go to the doctor to figure out what happened to that other testicle. And he said, well, you know, you know, I'm not supposed to let anyone touch me there. I go, well, your mom and dad are going to be there too. So that makes it okay because we're both there with you. We're going to make sure it's safe. And that was an, a, a learning opportunity of setting boundaries and why and using words like scrotum, testicle, and what mm-hmm. happens. Um, Education and the protector being there. Yeah, and to give them the boundary of under this circumstance, mm-hmm. this is okay. And I told him, you're absolutely right. Under any other circumstance, you are correct. This is not, it would not be okay. Um, and and we actually asked him, is it okay if we take you to the doctor that he can do this to you if we're there? What would make you feel safe? And let him have some of that mm-hmm. um, responsibility of decision-making too. I love that. Um, and I would say, not every parent's going to be able to have that talk and say words like mm-hmm. scrotum. Find somebody that can. Maybe it's an aunt. Maybe it's a girlfriend that just has that mouth that is free uh, and is generous. And, and and that's being a good parent, too. Mm-hmm. Delegating is being a good parent. You can say, you know, honey, it's really important to talk about all kinds of things in life. And this is just, or however way you want to phrase it, Um for me, I'm really happy talking to you about cooking or mm-hmm. other things that you're, you know, bond over. This is a place where I've asked your aunt or I've asked your uncle or your teacher. And and you can maybe be there during the conversation if you want, or but find a way to find a person that's comfortable talking about it. I, because it exists, you know, it does. and if we don't teach our children, then they, they may be misinformed by someone else. Exactly. Or hurt by someone else. That's where I got my misinformation. Yeah. I was instructed by this 35-year-old Don King that told me things that were wrong um, because it benefited him and not, it wasn't after my best interest. So find someone that's, you know, in, and I would recommend a more um, personal I know it's really hard one-on-one to talk to kids. Maybe, like for me, my three kids, they're all boys, so I can talk to them all together about it. Can I give you another example? Um, We're watching a baseball game. I think it was a World Series. And the uh, ad came on for Viagra. And the middle son, again, young, I don't know, nine years old, said, what is he might have been older than that. But anyway, he goes, what does Viagra mean? They have all these commercials for Viagra. And I said, well, it has to do with sex. Would you like to, do you still want to know? And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, then do you know what sex is? 
And he said, yeah. This was in front of everyone? Yeah. My whole, you know, <laughs> oh, God, mom, here she goes. Talk about how sex abuse has affected your family. Um, and I said, yeah, it's uh, so it has to do with sex. And and yeah, I go, so then do you know what sex is? And he goes, yeah. And I go, okay, well, then, you know, basically it's an act where penis goes into a vagina during lovemaking. And um, in order to do that, you know, the, the penis has to be pretty rigid. Um, and firm, you know, like maybe how you feel when you wake up in the morning or in a shower, like so right away to say that it's a normal, natural experience that you may or may not be having. Um, I said, now it turns out that some people, some men, when they're older, typically, but some men have an issue with the blood flow to go to the penis to make it firm so they can do this act that is really, you know, something enjoyable between two loving people. And so they may go to the doctor to get this pill that takes care of that. Isn't that great? They have a pill that can do that. And I said, um, you know, and I said, and they're advertising it now on television because people are embarrassed to go to the doctor and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And maybe if these baseball players and baseball fans can talk about it, then it's okay. It makes it okay for them to talk about it with their doctor. So now, you know, do you have any other questions? And the oldest son says, <laughs> I know it is, it's good to laugh. Humor is yeah. a great way to approach it too. And my oldest son said, you know, mom, I think we've heard enough about erections and Viagra for one night. Can we just watch the game? And I love, and we laughed and that's okay too. And, to laugh about it. It's funny. These words are funny. But they heard you. But they heard me. And I asked my husband, stop me if you want. He goes, oh, no, honey, you're doing great. (laughs) And I I love that it's okay for my sons to know that women can understand males' bodies and that Mm -hmm. males can understand females' bodies. Uh, We, again, inappropriate mom. I love that because it builds mutual respect, you know? And isn't that in the end what you really want for your children? I say we're not raising children, we're raising adults. That doesn't mean we're taking away their childhood. Mm -hmm. I believe in extending childhood as long as possible. But in the end, when they leave your nest, you're launching them as adults. So you want to give them those tools. You're giving them the resources to make the right decision. Exactly. Instead of not knowing clearly what could be right or wrong. Right. Mary Beth, can I ask you one last question? Ask me as many (laughs) as you want. Have you forgiven your predator and have you forgiven those who should have protected you? Um, you know, Michelle, this might sound really weird and backwards to your listeners, but it was actually for me pretty easy to forgive the predator. Um, because I feel like I said he was just wired to do what he did. It doesn't take away that I want to hold him fully accountable and that what he did was wrong and evil and he should be, should have been, um, you know, disciplined or felt had he should have met some demise for his own behaviors and actions. He alone is responsible for that. Um, it's like saying you got burned by a hot stove and my hand touched the stove and got burned. Can you blame the stove? Again, I don't blame me either. It was an accident. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It could happen to anybody. So I'm not blaming Like me. he's a monster and may always be a monster. Yeah, he is. That's just who he is. The hard part um, 
although loving and well-meaning, the hard part is to forgive the enablers or the people that um, want that ask the victims questions like, why did you keep going back? Or is this going to be your identity? It's going to always be part of me. Um, or you should have stopped him that something was within my control. Those. Did you those feel like they were folks, blaming you? Yeah, I, I do. Um, maybe not intentionally, but that was my, that's how I took it. Mm -hmm. That was my perception that I had something to do with it that if it weren't for me, this wouldn't have happened to me. The best response, so th those are hard to forgive, but again, I love that every reaction's normal. Just some reactions are better than others. I love the reaction. One of my strongest friends, I don't like the word strong so much, but she really is a capable a person um, and I admire her so much and she's also a swimmer and tough as nails and when she heard she goes oh that could have happened to me if I were there that just relieved me like it wasn't about me it was it you just got unlucky basically you know it's just if it, it's if it's gonna happen to one in three people why not me you know mm -hmm. so that's kind of how I went about the self-forgiveness it's, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It could have happened to anybody. Um, so yeah, the point of, um, you know, well, you need to get over it or you need to heal or those, those kinds of things. I don't need to do anything. I can just be, I would like that mm -hmm. as a reaction more than, um, pointing me into areas that other people think I should be at. Do you feel like you're managing your feelings every day? Um, yeah, some days are much more easier than others. Um, most days are easy because of the broad range of support I have. I have built, mm -hmm. a. I say this, I have built a support system and I believe that it's my responsibility, just like I take care of my physical health and my spiritual health. It's also my responsibility to take care of my emotional health. Mm -hmm. Um, I take it seriously, my mental health. I still see my psychiatrist on a regular basis. I take a medication to help relieve my anxiety. My steady state is anxious. Uh, when somebody's traumatized as a child and they live with so much anxiety, it really does become your steady state. And so think of that as being my norm at anxious level, little like short breath in the chest would be my normal breath, little tension, um, little shot like embarrassment sometimes mm -hmm. in in situations especially physical situations you're and aware of how you feel i'm aware i'm hyper aware of how i feel i'm aware that maybe a hug might come about i have to prepare myself for physical mm -hmm. contact things like that that are doable but that's my steady state so mm -hmm. how do i combat that i have you ever said no to a hug yeah Good i have <laughs> i have and i say no and say not I'm not ready for a hug now, but I'm open to it in the future. I'll mm -hmm. let you know. Um, because rare, like you said before, it's rarely, okay to feel safe. Yeah, it's okay to feel safe. Like, I'm, you know, and it's not a shun. I, I don't, because I'll say, like, I appreciate that you want to hug me, but not right now. Um, I'm gonna, I'll be open to that in the future, but 
you know, those are the kind of thoughts that go through my head. Mm -hmm. And I actually will speak it out loud to people. Um, And sometimes I love a big hug. It's about safety. Is that Mm -hmm. a safe hug or is it a a hug? I don't want to get too over analytical, but it's about the hug. What's the intention behind the hug? Yeah, I mean, sometimes there are creepy hugs. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> there are. Exactly. Right? Or, yeah, or Let's be honest, hugs. there yeah. are, you know. But I was going to say about taking care of my mental, emotional state, I believe in building a support system for yourself. And I, I use visual imagery a lot. And my support system is my parachute. And I believe in my parachute suspending me just a loft, you know, in a good place um, with the earth and the ground just below me. And my job is to create a safe landing and to feel grounded um, without being injured. And so with my parachute, I imagine each tether being a support system in my life, whether it be water. I love water. If I can float in the water, look at the ocean, which we're so fortunate to have nearby, or a shower, just sometimes even just a glass of water, just look at the water. That's a big um, support mechanism for me. My therapy, my friends, exercise. Um, Gosh, some people don't even know they're my support system. And I just call them my silent support. They don't know my story. They don't Mm -hmm. know that I need them in my life for healing. But I I picture them as my... um, support tether on the parachute as well and it's not important to me that everybody knows this story but the story that you're continuing to build yeah and grow in a safe beautiful way like you're still creating your story Mm -hmm. i think it's so profound it is a story that will continue i think that's true in anybody's life that's been but you make your ending exactly do you have that like what is it august wilson says some quote about um illuminate the darkness in your soul that out of that comes your light and I think looking at dark and I'm that's paraphrasing it it's not exactly the quote but I use that quote a lot in my head um um and illuminating darkness in your life I believe can lead to light it's not dwelling or causing you to go into a depressed state it's 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 um digesting processing metabolizing however whatever word you want to put into it you know the more sometimes the more you talk about it things inside your head that are silent can become bigger than when you speak it out loud it doesn't give it the power so much how beautiful mary beth thank you for sharing your story i think you're such a beacon of light for Everyone, for all of us, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for your grace and comfort. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.